It's wonderful to be back with you like this. I enjoy sitting among you and worshiping, and this is a privilege also to bring God's Word. And I would like to ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to our text or your bulletins. Have it as well. I'll be reading from the old new international version, the 1984 edition, which I have come to love. By the way, uh, I really enjoy the New American Standard Version. You know, no one translation captures everything in the original perfectly, and even if I thought it did, I'd be wrong in places, I'm sure. Uh, but, but they're good translations. The reason I didn't use the, uh, new, inter, the new American Standard when I went to Australia is because of the name. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> New American Standard, come on, you Aussies, get in line. I couldn't quite do that, so we used the New International Version, and that's how that started. <laughs> but would you turn with me in whatever translation you have at hand uh, to John's Gospel, chapter 17, and we'll begin at verse 20 through the end of the chapter. And a little bit of the background, remember, Jesus has just finished uh, celebrating the Passover for the last time with his disciples, including Judas. And Judas leaves just before the Passover itself as Jesus hands him a piece of bread dipped in a gravy. And uh, we're told Judas went out and it was night. And the Gospel of John begins with the account that Jesus is the light of the world. In him was light. In him is no darkness at all. And Judas goes out, and it's night. And then Jesus goes on to teach his disciples. He's already washed their feet. He's told them, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, he who would be greatest, let him be the servant of all. And then he goes on in chapters 14, 15, and 16, among other things, to tell them of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter that will remind them of everything. You know, Jesus says, I have many more things to teach you, but you can't bear them now. And I'm thinking as I read those words every time, I think, Jesus, you're out of time. Time's up. What are you going to do? And Jesus already has the answer, of course. He knows they're not ready. He says, you can't bear them now, but he says, but the Holy Spirit, after he's come, the Comforter, he will lead you into all truth, that's new revelation, and bring everything to your remembrance whatsoever I've taught you. There's a special endowment of the Holy Spirit for the apostolic band, and they will be the ones who testify about Jesus. Remember that Jesus performed many miracles, a lot of them. A lot of people had seen Jesus. They'd heard him. They'd watched him. There were lots of stories around. I remember when I saw Jesus that time, and I think he said this. But did he? <laughs> did, did that story quite get it right? How would they know? The answer is Jesus gave a paradigm by which all else would be measured. That paradigm would be the apostolic teaching of the cross. That those that he'd poured his life into and never written a thing other than in the dust of the temple floor, the beginning verses of John 8 and the pericope there, and even then we don't know for sure what, it's, we're not told what it was he wrote. I surmise maybe, but that's a 
for another sermon perhaps, but, but the point is we don't have any book according to Jesus. We have the whole New Testament, the whole Old Testament. It's all by Jesus, by his spirit. It's all about him. And everything else that we read and, and learn of is measured by the account given to us by Christ through the Holy Spirit working in and through the apostles. And so he begins with praying for his apostles, for the 12, but he's not just got them in mind right from the beginning. He has us in mind. Remember that as we begin to read these verses. Jesus knows he's going to go, just, just about, the text tells us, just about to go down out of the city, across the Kydron Valley, up into the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he often goes to pray, and he knows Judas knows it. And he knows his betrayer will meet him there, be a accompanied by a mob, not only soldiers, but ruffians. Swords, yes, and clubs as well, and torches. And they will arrest him and take him to his death. And he knows it all and doesn't run. Instead, he prays. And this is part of his prayer. Verses 20 through 26. My prayer is not for them alone, the twelve. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want, I will, the word says, I will that those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you take your word and by your spirit inscribe it on our hearts. Convict us. Comfort us. Encourage us. Equip us this hour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pardon me for a minute. I've just discovered that my presbyopia is a little worse than I thought. <laughs> presbyopia, old man's eyes, all right. The health sector is becoming one of the largest in the American economy. You can read about it everywhere in the newspapers. It's online. Advertisers parade a wide array of foods, 
exercise equipment, medications, and medical services. All are aimed at the quest for health and vigor. Interestingly, almost never is a product or service marketed using unhealthy-looking commercial spokespersons. Why? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? Who'd want to seek health solutions from persons who are themselves a living contradiction of what they advertise? Mm. But so, in a way, is it in the Christian community of faith. Perhaps the greatest stumbling block for those outside of Christ as they consider the appeal of the gospel is the way they see professing Christians, believers, mistreat one another. And conversely, one of the things that most draws people to the gospel, it did for me, is when they see it lived out by believers living in loving unity with one another. Now, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, as he prepared to face his betrayer, Jesus asks his Father for four things on behalf of believers. He prays for their preservation, their sanctification, their unity, and their participation in his own glory. And the Father most assuredly answers his Son's prayers. And yet, and yet, Jesus astoundingly asserts that those outside of faith in him actually do either conclude that God has sent him as Savior or they reject him, often based upon what they perceive to be his followers' expression of loving unity. And in the text, the little paragraph that we're looking at today, the point is this that our unity as believers draws those outside of Christ to trust in him also. It really does. You think about that? That the world, in a sense, in a sense, a limited sense, the world has a right to conclude whether the Father has sent the Son on the basis of how we relate to each other, Christ's community. Now, that's profound. I'd like for us to observe, first of all, that as believers, we are indwelt and empowered by our Lord himself. In uh, verse 26, the latter part of the verse, he says, I myself may be in them. It's not an Obi-Wan Kenobi saying, Luke, from outside somewhere, I see him, you know, I feel his presence. No, 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 no. He's actually and really in us. See, our changed hearts are the work of God, not of ourselves. Uh, verse 26 begins by saying, I, Jesus says, I have made you known, it's the beginning of the Father, made you, Father, known to them. That is the twelve and those who believe in their, in, uh, based on their witness. In the immediate preceding context, verse 9, Lord Jesus has said, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Now, in the, taken together, that means that there are those who are given by the Father to the Son who are yet in the world and are among those who will be encountered by the gospel, which will be used by the Spirit of God to change their hearts 
and change their lives and change their community. Our changed hearts, you see, are characterized by God's love. If they are changed, that's how they're characterized. Verse 26 speaks of love, both the past and present work of God in our lives. I have made you known, Jesus says to them. And it goes on to say, I will continue to make you known. Now that's justification and sanctification. That's our regeneration. That's our new birth in Christ. Our adoption into the family, that's one time. And then it's the ongoing growth in grace that really means the Holy Spirit's ongoing work to conform each of us to mirror more and more our Savior. And we're smudged mirrors imperfect mirrors, but the Holy Spirit's at work on us, and more and more we're polished, we're clean. And more and more, as we walk with the Lord, people see, though imperfectly still, they see reflection of the one we love, in whom is all our trust and our allegiance. And so the Apostle Paul can say, be followers of me as I am of Christ. He is our great model. We're never finished in this life. We're always in the process of growing and taking the next step. My wife's grandfather on his deathbed prayed a prayer that has become a daily prayer of mine. Lord, sanctify me for heaven. Lord, sanctify me for heaven. Make me holy. Make me more an expression of the Savior I love. Once great athletes who've accomplished tremendous things, who decide that they'll just rest for a while and rest on their laurels, seldom stay on top of their sport. You've seen it, and so have I. Contrast that with the flood of buttons some years back, decades back in downtown um, Baltimore. Everywhere people were wearing the button that proclaimed PBP, G-I-N-F-Y, W-M-Y. What? It doesn't spell a thing, but the letters stand for this. It was part of a Bill Gothard Institute in basic youth conflicts, and one of the themes was whatever. He had some good theology and some things that I would like to polish perhaps a bit biblically, but, but he had this phrase, and they wore it on these buttons. Please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. And it was an acknowledgment that they hadn't arrived. Brothers and sisters... Christ community, I want to tell you, uh, I'm knocking at my <laughs> beginning of my eighth decade in, in just a few years, <laughs> the beginning of it. Let's not make it worse than it is. Uh, I haven't finished until God takes me home. I'm still learning, learning from his word, learning of Jesus, being transformed into a better likeness the one whom I love with all my heart and whom I'd love to be like and share with others. As believers, you see, we already are new creatures. Paul writes the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone. 
The new has come. There's something decisive. You're not part of the world anymore. You're part of God's family now. His spirit is working in your heart in a way that is not true in the general revelation providence of God among all his creations and all people. No, you are now his family member, his own son or daughter in Christ Jesus. And yet, you haven't finished. That's done once for all, and yet there's something ongoing. The same Paul who wrote those words wrote to the Philippian believers and says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Do you see yourself both as something new, radically transformed already? Because the dynamic in your heart is different from the world from which you've been called. And yet at the same time, one who's in process, in whom the Spirit of God is livingly active. That brings us to the second point. Our believing community is designed to reflect the glory of our triune God. In verse 21, uh, Jesus begins with these, these words. He says, Father, he says, that all of them may be one, just as you're in me, and I in you may be, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. And then he goes on, and he says in verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Now, we'll look more closely at how being one has to do with glory for the risen Christ. But just now, I want you to notice the term glory. It's used repeatedly, not just in this section, but the previous verses of this prayer. Jesus speaks of glory, glory, glory. And when he speaks of glory, he says, your glory, Father, my glory, the glory I had with you from the beginning, the glory I'm giving these who belong to you because they belong to me. Glory, God's glory. Where in the Old Testament was the glory of God perhaps most clearly expressed visibly? Oh, if you thought of the Exodus event, you're thinking as I do. The glory cloud of God, the cloud of the presence of God, a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night to lead his people even through the wastelands of desert and provide for them a sure course. A cloud that was ready to move to their rear guard and be for them protective wall between his people and the pursuing Egyptian chariots of Pharaoh. A glory cloud that enveloped the tent of meeting where Moses would meet with Most High. A cloud of the Lord that enveloped the tabernacle when it was dedicated and later would do so with the temple of Solomon at its dedication. The glory cloud of God so thick and splendid in its refulgence of glory that even the priests could not stand to do their tasks in the presence of God. They had to evacuate for a time until the cloud subsided a bit, a bit. Glory, 
There shall no man see me, see my face, and live, God had said to Moses on Mount Sinai. But John's gospel begins in the very first chapter and says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten of the Father, who's that Jesus Christ, he has revealed him. He has revealed him. We look on Jesus and we see the face of God among us. And so his name is Emmanuel. God with us. How would God act? How would he respond if he had to live in our fallen, unfair, unjust, unjust world? Friends, he did. In the person of his son. He walked among us. We're told the word became flesh and tabernacled for a while among us. And we beheld his what? Glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Even a middle school orchestra of learning students, some of them who've only handled, put their hands on musical instrument for a few months previously, they can still bring delight to an audience if the aspiring musicians learn to play together in order to present the work of the master whose masterpiece they play. For most of us, certainly for me, I'll speak for myself, Beethoven and Bach cannot be appreciated simply by looking at the musical score. <laughs> Some very talented people play it in their minds. Most of us don't do that. I look at that musical score and I say, uh-huh, let me have my Hebrew or let me have my Kiswahili. I'm more familiar with those <laughs> than a musical score. Uh, but most of us, you see, can't just look at the score and appreciate the genius of Beethoven. We have to hear the master's music played, and it's played in orchestra, different, distinctively different instruments, blending together, even though truly imperfectly. Dana could tell us about her junior high orchestra in order to taste the greatness of the master. And so, friends, it is with the gospel. Christ community, our community around us looks at us. They're going to judge whether the Father really sent the Son, which is a way of saying the gospel, because the Father sending the Son into the world is what the gospel is about. Go all the way back to Genesis, first three chapters, and the, and the initial sin of our, of our first ancestors. And even there, where sin breaks out and infects the race, even there, God promises. He says that the seed of the woman will one day come and crush the head of the serpent at cost to himself, the suffering for the serpent will bruise his heel. That the Father has sent the Son is a shorthand way of saying the whole redemptive historical plan of God consummated in Christ in the gospel that the world may believe the gospel, that the Father has sent the Son to save people like us, every one of us, sinful in the eyes of a perfectly holy God. And even after we're saved, we have our imperfections, our rough edges. 
It's easier just to go be a hermit, but that's not how God has intended it. He's ordained that we be a community. I love the name of our church. Christ community. Community. People who are bonded to one another. Care about each other. Because Christ is in us. The hope of glory. And that brings us to our final point. Our authentic unity as believers is a crucial means by which the world may be convinced that Jesus is the Savior sent by God the Father. And so in verse 21, the latter part of the verse, when Jesus says um, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23 I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Jesus had said to his disciples not long before this prayer, in the upper room as he'd finished washing their feet, they'd been fussing at each other. Yes, his disciples fussed off and you begin to to track all the occasions of their fussing at one another. Beginning where? Beginning at Caesarea Philippi. What happened there? Well, that's the great uh, time uh, where, where Jesus brought Peter to a confession of who he was. Whom do men say that I am? Well, they think some, that you're Elijah or one of the prophets. Some, uh, well, whom do you think? Uh, whom do you say I am? Peter says boldly, blurts it out. You are the Messiah the anointed one, the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the first time any of the disciples would have said that. Their consciousness of who he was was awakening as he awakened them to it. And then he begins to tell them that he must go to Jerusalem, be treated shamefully and be put to suffer many things and be put to death and on the third day raised from the dead and what's Peter do? Oh no, take him aside. Jesus, take it from me. I mean, you told me that uh, flesh and blood didn't uh, reveal to me this. I have a special insight. See, I understand that the force is strong with me, sure. Right, anyway, that's kind of thing and he's going he's gonna to be Jesus' counselor. This will never happen to you and we're told Jesus looks, stops and he looks around. Because all the other 11 disciples are going, their chins down, mouths agape for what's going on here. He looks around, sees them, and then he turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. For you do not the savor the things of God, but the things of men. Now, he's not throwing Peter away. He's saying, right now, at that instant, Satan has put that thought into Peter's mind. I say that because the apostles had a hard time dealing with the notion Jesus was going to his death. But it's from that point, from that point on, that you begin to find records, accounts, here and there, of the disciples arguing with each other. What are they contentious with each other over? Who will be the greatest? And time and again, Jesus has to stop them. He takes a little child and puts them in their midst. 
says if he would be the greatest, in order to enter the heaven, the kingdom of God, you have to become like this little child. And he says the one that would be greatest among you has to be servant of all. Lots of popular courses on leadership. Don't see as many that are popular on servanthood. But that's the kind of leadership Jesus called his disciples to. Time and again, his disciples fuss over who's going to be the greatest. And now Jesus says, time's up. I go to my Father. And he's praying to the Father. And he's praying for their unity in him. William Hendrickson makes an important distinction between the unity of the Trinity, which is one of essence, being, and the unity of God's people, which is one of purpose as the Spirit, the divine, the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable Spirit of God works in our hearts, and, and by Him, Christ Himself is present in our hearts. E.A. Blum <clears throat> makes the following salient observation, and I'll quote, Jesus requested unity for future believers. Verse 21, he says, this verse is a favorite of promoters of the present ecumenical movement. Admittedly, the divided church is in many ways a scandal. The cure, however, is not institutional union. Jesus was not praying for the unity of a single worldwide ecumenical church in which doctrinal heresy would be maintained along with orthodoxy. Instead, he was praying for a unity of love, a unity of obedience to God and his word, and a united commitment to his will. There are great differences between uniformity, union, and unity, unquote. See, the world around us does not know God. They understand the union of an empire forced together by bayonet. They understand that. You call that unity? The world does. Jesus doesn't. The world around us doesn't know God. Verse 25, we read, the world does not know you. Why don't they know you? Because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The Apostle Paul in the opening chapter of Romans writes these familiar words. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. How do we put these together, those two verses? Well, that's pretty apparent, it seems to me. First of all, that no one is excused for not knowing God. Down deep, we all instinctively see and know, but we also just as instinctively in our sinful, natural flesh and ourselves suppress that knowledge, refuse to acknowledge who God is. And Jesus says here, the world therefore doesn't know him. It has a different master. He's called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work among the sons of disobedience. But Christ, the risen Christ, 
still exercises all authority in heaven and on earth, and that means principalities and powers are also subject to him. Honeybees don't see the colors of our garden flowers as we see them. Their eyes instead perceive light in infrared, I'm sorry, in ultraviolet, mistype. Ultraviolet, it's vibrant to them. So it is with the gospel. It's like someone asking someone to imagine a color they've never seen. Try it. You can't do it. Only the Holy Spirit can give them that sight. Otherwise, they remain spiritually blinded. And we're told God does it through the proclamation of the gospel by us. Sinful, imperfect, but redeemed human beings who are in the process of being sanctified, growing in our likeness to Jesus by the Spirit's work in our heart. You see, our Lord has sent us into the world as an extension of his own mission. Verse 18, previous, uh, in the immediately previous context, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And after his resurrection, in chapter 20, verse 21 of this gospel, the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. He promises his, his presence and power. In the Great Commission, as it's often called, of Matthew's gospel, the verses, three verses with which it closes in chapter 28, the Lord Jesus on the mountain in Galilee, and I suspect there were more than 500 there, we're told that one of his resurrection appearances, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, where he lists a lot of them, he says one was to over 500 people at once, the greater part of whom were still alive, as Paul wrote that letter to the Corinthians. And there was only one that we know of, one resurrection appearance, only one uh, that Jesus announced ahead of time. <laughs> All the rest caught people by surprise. What was that one? Well, um, he told Mary Magdalene at the tomb, go and tell my disciples, especially, shouldn't be and, especially Peter, that I've gone before them to Galilee. He had told his disciples as well. They knew that. That spread, I'm sure, and there were people there a large number, I suspect, of people there. And Jesus says, as he closes that great commission, all authority, he says, on heaven and in earth has been given unto me. Therefore, you go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, triune God, one name and teaching them to obey everything I have taught you. That's the whole counsel of God. And lo, he says, I am with you always, even to the consummation of the age. And I can't let that go without saying in the original language, the words I am is, egoimi, is the same words translated again and again in the... Uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the name God gave, that God revealed himself to, to Moses. I am that I am, Exodus chapter 3. And Jesus says, I am, again and again in the gospel accounts. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the life. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am. But here, here he doesn't just say, I am. He says, Ego methamon me. I with you am. The I am embraces his people. As the high priest wore a breastplate over his ephod into the presence of God, and on that breastplate were 12 gemstones, each inscribed with one, the names of one of the tribes of Israel. And so the high priest bore the people of God between his shoulders into the presence of the Most High. Here, as Jesus gives his commission and his command to all his people, he does that. I with you am. And as our high priest, he intercedes for us now. It's a loving assurance. It's a wonderful commission. It's one prompted by allegiance to Jesus and that is willing to bear with one another in love. Just as we do in a functional family where there are sometimes differences and sometimes a little strife. But there's always that bond that helps them stick with it and, and break through, work through it. And so we could sing earlier today, your love never quits. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. And if that's the love of God, <clears throat> which is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that, we ref that enables us to reflect the triune God before our neighborhood, before our community around us, then that is a love that never quits, that never gives up, that never runs out on one another.